only if we were old would have survived all this. And everything would be uncomplicated and easy, like it was when we were young. Katie, it was never uncomplicated. Two cheeseburgers and four cokes. Onion? Yeah, in the cokes. Look, I don't know when I'll be back. Uh, could you leave a key or... <laughs> you can't, you can't. Uh, I've got steaks and baked potatoes and sour cream and chives and salad and fresh baked pie. I would have made a pot roast. I make a terrific pot roast. But uh, I didn't know whether you ever had pot roast, whether you like pot roast. And anyway, there wasn't time because it really should be made the day before. Uh, you can't go yet. Uh, you've just got to stay for supper. That's all there is to it. What kind of pie? You mustn't be too serious. Welcome to another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. My name is Ben Reiser, coming to you from Madison, Wisconsin on July 4th, 2021. And across the screen from me is Mr. Scott Lucas, who's currently in Chicago, right? That's right. That's what you call, that's what you call home these days. Yeah. Um, and we have a special guest with us on today's show. Um, my mom, Diane Reiser, from Whoa. Brooklyn, New York. Who's Hello. Hello. <laughs> in town visiting. You've been here since uh, last Tuesday. Tuesday. Right. Right. We've been having a fun time. We've been seeing some movies, um, including what we're talking about today. We watched together this morning. Uh, about an hour and a half ago, we finished The Way We Were. And I'm going to come clean to say that I had never, well, uh, Katie, my wife thinks that we might have watched this once in Brooklyn. Katie thinks that you watched it. Which, by the way, even after two times watching this movie, I didn't really understand what was going on with that whole stuttering thing. And then I looked it up. I agree. Oh, but I found out. Did you find out? No. Okay, well, we'll get to it when we get to it. Okay. Uh, But she thinks I might have seen this once with her, but I don't think I did. I know I've seen scenes from it, but I don't think I've ever sat down and actually watched this thing, which is weird because um, the reason I, the reason I picked this movie, because I knew my mom was going to be in town, was that this is what my mom has always, as far as I can tell, again, with my shady memory, uh, has, oh, always, has always been what she says is her favorite movie. 
And it is. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. Good. All right. I got that right. But we were at um, uh, Cinematheque. My job has opened back up for public screenings, people coming into a theater and watching a movie for the first time in 16 months. And we had a screening of Where's Papa um, on Friday night that my mom came to. And my sister's in town, too. But my sister's already done an episode of this podcast. So she's just, we're, not, we're, not, we're not having repeat guests yet. Um, but we, But in my intro to Where's Papa for the Cinematheque audience on Friday night, I started talking about... Now, Scott, I don't know if you know this story at all. In ni- at some point in the late 70s, which we'll get to in a second, uh, my parents' house, where I lived, and my two sisters, Barbara and Annie, also lived at the time. I need to make sure I mention them by name. Um, a movie was shot in our house, a terrible movie called Boardwalk, I do know the story. Oh, you do know the story. Yeah. Practically an unwatchable film, uh, but starring Lee Strasberg of Godfather 2, fame and fortune. Um, um, uh, uh, Janet Leigh figures into the story I'm about to sort of try to tell from Psycho uh, and uh, and The Fog. Uh, Figures. Right. And then um, Ruth Gordon, uh, who also was the star of Where's Papa? And so I was bringing up this anecdote about them being in the in in our house and me getting to spend some time with them uh, as a twelve year old. Um, and in my memory, and ha- as I've told this story over the past decade or so to anyone who wants to hear it, is that I was really excited to meet Janet Lee, not so much because of Psycho, which I'm sure I had seen and and, and loved. But that that she was Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, and I had, I was obsessed with Halloween. I saw it in 1978 when it came out, and was the it was the it was the it was the movie that replaced the Planet of the Apes <laughs> uh, series in my head as like the ultimate cinema. And so I tell this story of like being in a room with Janet Lee and only wanting to ask her about Jamie Lee Curtis. But as my mom points out uh this the boardwalk was shot in the summer of 78 mm-hmm. i keep thinking it was the summer of 79 and then it was released later in 1979 but my mom is adamant that that's not true and if it's not true then this idea of being in a room with janet lee and wanting to talk to her about jamie lee curtis is not true it's like something i made up after the fact i think so right it's like this is what i this is what I would have done had I seen Halloween in time to ask Janet Lee about it. So I'm going to clear that up. I'm, I'm happy to admit that it was me fudging. And, and, and I think I'm usually clear about the fact that I was 12 years old. And so I didn't really talk to any of these people. I was sort of like petrified the whole time I was on set with them. Uh, it's weird to be in a room with actual, you know, actors or celebrities I kind of I was I was that way with you, Scott, after the G-Man show. Uh, not really, but um, well, yes. So uh, your whole life is a lie. Yes, that's that's right basically here. the that's basically mind blowing. Yeah. What was the ending of? You said that there was a, a the ending of Where's Papa was a different yeah. ending. What yeah. was that? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great question, and I'm, th- I'm glad you brought that up. So the Where's Papa that I had always seen. Um, ends with um, 
and 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 we talked about this on an on an early episode of Seventy Movies on the Seventies about Where's Papa, uh, but uh, ends with George Siegel dropping Ruth Gordon off at the at a sort of nicer looking retirement home that she doesn't mm-hmm. want to go to. All she she thinks she's there to meet Papa, her husband, who's been dead for a while, but she doesn't think that that's true, and so he. She gets out of the car reluctantly and isn't going to stay. And she keeps saying, where's Papa? Where's Papa? And he runs over and grabs like the nearest senior citizen uh, male, an old guy. Like literally picks him up, runs him over to Ruth Gordon, drops him next to Ruth Gordon. He said, here's Papa. And they, they look at each other and she says, Papa? And he says, Mama? And George Siegel jumps into the car with Trish Vanderveer and drives off into the sunset. Kind of... Uh, as close to a happy ending as I guess Where's Papa could 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 achieve. Uh. But apparently, when the film was first made and previewed, uh, it had two more minutes. Uh, and the print, the 35mm print that we showed the other night, had those last two minutes. Um, I think at some point, uh, this this original ending had been added as a bonus feature to like DVDs and Blu-rays. So somehow I never caught it. Um, but also when they struck some prints maybe 10 years ago, they did it with this original ending. Um, and the original ending had... So, so Trish Vanderveer and George Siegel get in the car and they make their way back to his apartment... And the phone is ringing, and he picks it up, and it's Ruth Gordon, and she's at the nursing home, and she's yelling at him. She's doesn't she? That turns out that wasn't Papa. She uh-huh. she's coming home. She's had it. She needs to get out. Uh, and he says, under no circumstances can you come home. And he starts this whole argument with her. Meanwhile, Trish Vanderveer is listening to this conversation in horror, and she sort of slowly backs out of the apartment. And then leaves. And he turns around to discover that Trish Vanderveer is gone, and he like. This relationship has been ruined after all. And he says, I'm, com- I'm coming over there, Mama. And it cuts to him arriving back at that nursing home. And he's still got the, he's torn his phone out of the wall. And he still has it in his hands. And he's holding it like it's a murder weapon. And he busts into the nursing home. And he storms up the stairs. They tell him which room she's in. He sort of kicks open the door to her her room in the nursery room, and it's all dark, and she's in bed. And it looks like he's going to kill her, and instead, um, she says, Papa? And he says, yeah, it's Papa. Uh, yes, I'm Papa. I'm here. And he gets into bed with her. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> that and then and then the woman from the nursing home is watching this from the doorway, and she's looking on in horror. You don't really see what's happening in the bed. Uh, but she closes the door, and it goes darkness, and that's the end. It's a, it's a much darker. All the subtext becomes text at the end. Yes, Oedipal. Oedipal, thank you. The Oedipal yes. is no longer just implied. Right. Uh, so, and it's, so that exists. So that happened to be on the print that you had. Yes, yes, that exists. That was the original ending, and I have to say... That I'm with Carl Reiner and company. I think they made a, a much better choice by cutting that out and leaving it on on a scene which gets a good laugh from the audience. I wound up actually seeing it twice on Friday night because yeah. we showed it twice. And I walked in at the end of the first screening and saw the reaction from the crowd 
to the to the sort of ending we all know, and then this original ending, and then saw it again at the screening we were at, and people laugh when the old guy gets dropped next to her and they meet each other, and nobody's laughing <laughs> at the end of this movie when George Siegel is is in wow. bed with, with his wow. mom. So there you go. Wow, you go. I, I had no idea. And London After Midnight remains lost. Yes, that's which is which is too bad. But speaking of something else that was lost or not even known of, and I thought this would be a good question to ask my mom. I know we're going to get to the way we were in a second. Yeah, I'm fine. That's how it goes. Yeah. That's, that's how it is. Strap in, sit back. This is how it's going to go. So there's a new movie. Uh, directed by this guy Questlove, which is a documentary called Summer of Soul. Yes. And it's, and it's it's built around a ton of footage that was... I know they keep... Some of these things they filmed, and I just want to step in to say this was videotaped. Video. Yeah. Uh, from a... Is it 1970? 1969. Summer of 70? 69. 69. Summer 69. Same as Woodstock. Same as Woodstock. Yeah. But it was the Harlem... Cultural festival? Is that what it was yes. called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And apparently this festival was, was videotaped almost in its entirety, it seems like. Right. And but the, the but that videotape footage sat in a basement and has never been seen by anyone until now, until they f- finally put this documentary together. Now mom. That's the legend. That's the legend? Do you know that there's something the is there is no, there something I mean, you know, that's what they say. It makes a good story. Uh, whether or not that's true, well, doesn't I'm, matter. Well, I've never heard of I've never heard of this festival. Have yeah. you, Scott? Um, no, no. I think, I mean, I'd heard of Wattstacks, but you know, I don't think I'd heard of this. Right, but Mom, you were living in New York City in 1969. Yes, I you was. were aware of Woodstock. You didn't go to Woodstock. No, we did not go to Woodstock. We had two very small children. It didn't stop you from taking us to all these. Rallies and demonstrations well, in Washington, D.C. Yes, because that was important. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, we thought about it, but we didn't. Right. Yeah. A wise decision. But were so you, do, do you, do you remember being aware at the time of the Harlem Cultural no, Festival? No. No. And I'll say that living in Brooklyn, Harlem seems like it might as well be another planet away. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you can't. Well, that's what it seemed like to you at the time. Well, what did it seem like to you in 1969? Um, probably in 69 it seemed that way, but but then it didn't eventually. I mean, it's, you know, I travel there. Well, yeah, okay. But yeah. uh, but when I but at any time when I grew up, I don't, no. I don't remember us ever going to Harlem for any no. reason. No, that's true. I'm saying, but eventually. You remember you're older now. You know what I'm saying? It's like there's a, there's a distance between when you were a kid and now. I understand, but I mean, for for for. And you didn't see Halloween. You hadn't seen Halloween yet. Remember that. I know, but what I'm saying is, for all intents and purposes, going to the Harlem Cultural Festival was only mildly less of an ordeal, probably in your, if you'd even if you'd known about it, the concept of like I'm going to go to that. It's probably a sort of off-putting in 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 sort of in terms of distance and 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 getting there as it would have been to go to Woodstock. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were going to take the subway, it's like it's like probably over an hour each way, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, but my but but here's the thing about my parents. Uh, they met in a in a. Now you can stop me if I'm wrong about this stuff. They met, and this is kind of I love this the story. They met in at Brooklyn College. They were both taking a guitar class. <laughs> right, but it wasn't it wasn't part of the. You know, it was like on Saturday mornings, or yeah, you know, it was, it was like, like adult. An adult, right? I was still a student, but your father had graduated and lived in Europe and Israel for a year and a half. He came back and he went to take this guitar class, and I was taking the guitar class because we all wanted to be folk singers in those mm. days. Um, I, of course, I'm tone deaf, so. Um, that shouldn't have stopped you. I, it didn't. It didn't stop a lot of folk singers. Right. Well, <laughs> should be not. It didn't stop me from taking the class. I never really learned to tune the guitar. Right. Um, but, but I met my husband of fifty-three years there. So, what could be bad? Right. And then you wound up having a son, me, who, mm-hmm. who did eventually learn. And and actually, I I then briefly took. I probably yes. that same guitar class at Brooklyn right. College. I think it was the same teacher, actually. I think, as we remember, yeah. um, was it? Oh my God! I well, think so. Well, yeah. I, now I've talked about this before too. The only thing I learned at that guitar class was how to play that song "Freight Train." Do you know okay. that song, Scott? No. What's the name of the woman who made it famous? Oh God, I don't remember Ben. I'm sorry. But it was like Pete Seeger. Yeah, Pete Seeger is singing it. Oh, the woman who taught. Who was like um, a family friend? I forget what her name was. Elizabeth something, I think. Anyway, Joan Armatrading. Yeah, it's like a kind of. It was pre Joan Armatrading, but but it was. Uh, but yeah, it was like a blues, a bluesy folk song. Freight train, freight train, going my way. Right. You know that, Scott? No, no you don't. No, know. Okay. not at all. I, I, but I, I gotta say that uh, the last thing about Summer Soul, it was very hard to pull myself away from watching that to watch uh, the way we were. I mean, I went to go see Summer of Soul in a theater. And, uh, oh. and I'm, I'm betting you haven't done that, but you should. No. Um, okay. And sit as close as you possibly can because that video footage looks like video footage in a theater. It looks much shittier in a theater than it does on, on TV. And the other thing that you get is, you know, Woodstock. But you're saying that as a positive? As a positive, yeah. Because you get the disparity between the the presentation of Woodstock and this. You know, Woodstock is 35-millimeter film, 16-millimeter film, and it's, you know, widescreen. And this is just like, this this might as, it's like you're looking at your iPhone, you know. It's 133, but it's even narrower than that. And it it pops right away. it's a great, great, great movie. So you're implying that the that the disparity in quality is also about the a black oriented festival and what people thought they needed to do to capture it yeah. versus yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, we've spent how many years hearing about Woodstock and and nothing hearing about this. Right. You know, yeah, I will say though that like as Bruce Springsteen finally releases like vintage stuff to go along with like the 25th anniversary and the 30th anniversary of this and that like the his uh when he re-released born to run a couple years ago uh and had a live concert from the hammersmith odeon in in london 
that was shot on 16 and looks and sounds amazing. And then when he reissued The River, uh, the concert that he put as part of that package on, was from 1980, and that was video, standard definition right. video. And it's the same thing. It's like, oh, man, I wish this thing looked like the Hammersmith Odeon thing did from five years earlier. You know, and it was just right. like, I, you know, it's true that they're both summer of 69. And I, and, and, um, and, and I haven't seen it in a theater. You're right. I thought the footage looked pretty good. I was immediately like, oh, this is video. Why, why haven't they been telling me that this is going to be video? But I thought for video, I thought, okay. And, and. No, it looks good uh, on TV. Yeah, but more importantly, it sounds really good. Like, it almost sounds too good. You're like, wow, this was, is this really the board tape from, from that, from those shows? Dude, I mean, just think about like all those, like, think about like Sam Cooke live records. You know, I mean, those things were recorded with one or two microphones. Those guys didn't need Mm. a bunch of stuff to fix their stuff. They They were right out of the box. Great. All right. So anyway, so you went to a theater and then you pull, but then you pulled yourself. It was you were having trouble pulling yourself out of the summer soul. And yeah, because it's on it's on Hulu, so I kept watching it over and over and over. And uh, I was like, all right, <laughs> I, I got to stop watching this thing, and I got to go back to 1973. All right. Well, I want to. I want my mom before I weigh in on what I what my reaction to this movie was that I basically never seen. Uh, but I want to hear, Mom, tell me if you can remember when you first saw this movie. The minute it came out. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, in a theater. Yeah, of course in a theater. Where You didn't see movies in other places right, that sure. just came out. Right, and right. I'm fairly certain that I saw it in the theater that it premiered in because in those days, it, a big movie like that only, right. I think, opened in one place at yeah, first. It was the Lowe's state. Lowe's state. Okay. Was I up did it have like a balcony cuz I remember being up high. Um and I think that maybe there were even then possibly a downstairs and an upstairs, but it was a big place. It was like I, at I, least a thousand people, I would say. I think even then the Lowe's state was a was two theaters, the Lowe's right. state 1 and 2. And they probably both had balconies. Oh, okay. Well, yes. And up. so you were in the balcony. I'm pretty sure. Well, you don't like that though, because you're. Well, not... it doesn't matter. I wanted to see the film. It didn't really matter where it was. You know, it was a big deal. Okay, but what was the main? Because let me establish this: you are not much of a moviegoer, or weren't. When right. I... Right. Like, what was your favorite movie before you saw the way we were? Oh, I don't know, Ben. Doctor Zhivago. Right, exactly. <laughs> Maybe, but. Not in the same way. I mean, this was a highly anticipated movie. Why? Okay, I want to take a guess, and then you tell me if okay, I'm Okay, sure. Put words in my mouth. Well, I think there's all kinds of things for you, but I feel like, and I think it's important to talk about this, of the, 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 the cultural, especially New York City, maybe Brooklyn, Jewish like the holy grail that was Barbara Streisand right in the 60s and 70s for for for, for you right. probably right for, but I did parents. not necessarily go see any of her other movies right so it wasn't just about her it was about 
her and Robert Redford, and it was about the, you know, what we were told the movie was going to be about. Um, well, who told you? I probably read about it. I mean, this was 1973. At this point, I had three children, as right. a matter of fact. So I was a little occupied. Um, and you needed a night out. Exactly. And not even with my husband. Yeah. I did not go to see the movie with my husband. <laughs> Why would he? Oh. Did you know that? No. I didn't even know that. No. Right. Who'd you go with? I went with Sharon. Oh, wow. Okay. Your friend. Uh, her best, yeah. Your best friend. Well, time. a good friend at the time. And... We went to see the movie. Yeah, this movie is she clearly a movie for girlfriends. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes, this is a movie that is like, uh, I think it's more like, for, like they, they always talk about the male gaze. This is more of a female oh, yeah. gaze. Mm-hmm. Yes. Movie. And I guess they call it a chick flick, but I don't, I mean, I, don't, mm. I think that's not a good term in general. It doesn't really, it's not really helpful for anything. I don't think it's all that helpful for this movie. Right. I don't think it really... Is particularly accurate, but so what? Okay, so what was it that they told you the movie was about that that really perked up your interest? Well, it was also about. I mean, she was a political activist, mm. and the character. Yeah, and you knew that going in. Yes, yes, I did know that. Had you read the book? And so I ident- No, okay. no, but I identified with her and the curly hair. We saw the pictures of the curly hair. I mean, we all had curly hair. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. Did, 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 but uh, did, <laughs> well, you were what? You were born what year? Forty five. Forty five. So I mean, they are older than I was. Are they age. your? Are they your parents' generation? Um, they're in between. Mm. Well, you know what? No, they are my parents' generation, and my parents were communists, so that was a whole other identification. The characters um, are your parents' generation, but the actors aren't. Right. Yeah, yeah. So right, exactly. Right. But the, <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. Because they graduated college in 1937, which means they were born in the late, like, 1917, 18, 19, right? Right. But, but, but Barbara Streisand, is she your age? Yeah, I think she is my age. She's either a year older or a year younger. She might be a year older. It's interesting. I mean, it was my mom's favorite movie, but, you uh, know, I mean... I can't imagine that. I mean, I'm pretty sure she was basically going for Robert Redford, you know. Well, that too. But I mean, she also loved Chris Christopherson. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Streisand played opposite Chris Christopherson as well. So, I mean, her two biggest crushes are Redford and Chris Christopherson. And she's taking cues from Streisand on, you know, who she should, I don't know, be. Uh, lusting after, I guess. Yeah, right. But your mom's parents were not communists. My mom's parents? No. No, his mom. No, no, no. Not, was your mom a communist? Not a communist. No, no, she was not a no. communist. No. Well, you never considered yourself a communist. No, that's true. Nor did my parents at the time that I was an adult, but as I was growing up, they were. Right. Um, well, okay, but so do you... So when you saw the movie, or even thinking back now, how much, how much of the character's experience do you relate to your parents' experience? Totally identified. Yeah. I mean, it was a very, very scary time. And I, I mean, I remember it completely. I, I remember when I was in 
fourth or fifth grade in school, so that would have been like 1954-55, coming home from school and being asked, you know, how was school today, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, you know what? I was like the only one in the class who answered a question differently. And the question was, what newspapers do you, you know, name newspapers, the teacher was asking us. And everybody named some new, remember at that time, there were probably seven to 10 newspapers in New York City that were regularly read. Really? That many? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I raised my hand and I said, the Daily Worker. Mm. And when I came home and I told my mother, <laughs> she said, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. We need to move out. Right. I mean, Get your I, passports ready. I mean, there were other, other similar kinds of incidents that occurred um, where my parents were really scared of, you know, being found out. And they had very close friends who had to move out of New York City. They moved to Cleveland. Um, well, am I right? Is this the story that your mom met your dad or saw him for the first time? He was on a soapbox in a park. In (laughs) in Union Square Park, proselytizing something, speaking. And she was taken there. She, She had two older cousins who had come. My mother was born in this country, but her cousins were born in Europe. And they had come here and they were her... They were her mentors, and they introduced her to all this radical thinking, which wasn't so radical in those days. And yeah, she met Grandpa there. Right, but so I mean, I, and of course, this, there isn't a perfect analogy between my grandparents and the characters. And the, but but it seems to me that maybe Grandpa was more the Barbara Streisand character, the more active activist. No, I think they both were. Okay. They do, they did different things, but they both were. They both were. They both were politically active and very vociferous about it. Why? Why? Because those were their values. Mm-hmm. And well, they were part of a generation that had that had been forced into exile, right? And come come here. Their parents were. Their parents. Well, their parents came here. To avoid being conscripted, and um, yeah, but they they were radicalized. I mean, and they changed because just as in the as in the movie where she is not supporting um, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, and then she is supporting Roosevelt. And I mean, my father used to say that you know he never voted for a major party candidate in his life until. I can't remember until who, but it was rather late. It was probably after you were born. Um, Kennedy, maybe? No. I don't think so. I don't think he voted for Kennedy. He might have voted for Johnson because he was running against Goldwater, but I don't even think he did that. I can't. I honestly don't remember who, who it was. But yeah, they were idealistic. Um, they didn't think that Roosevelt was doing enough for the Jews during the Holocaust. Um, you know, that was a pivotal thing in their lives. Hmm. Well, let me jump in to say that having, that I, that the reason I, I don't know why I avoided seeing this movie, uh, for as long as I did, which is ever, you know, from 1973 through, Mm -hmm. through yesterday was when I watched it for the first time. Certainly it's weird to me because I've, I've known this whole time this was your favorite movie. 
I and, wasn't and, offended. No, I know. Well, this is, well, one thing is I didn't, whatever kind of uh, sort of like curating gene I have, like the need to mm-hmm. sort of like share my tastes uh, with, with people, with other people and people that, that I know, I didn't get that from you. You don't have that. No, I don't. And not only that, I don't have that analytical gene that you have or that maybe Scott has. So when I watch a movie or listen to music or go to a museum, I do no analyzing. Hmm. So even when you said we were doing this, you wanted to do this podcast, I really had to think about, and it was good to watch the movie this morning, um, but I can't tell you, I can't take it apart the way that you do. I don't take apart books either. I just experience them and I experience the movie. And what was interesting to me was my experience of this movie this morning was so fabulous. It was like watching it for the first time, whereas I had watched it maybe... I don't remember, I think it was a year ago when Lily, that's your daughter, the oldest of my grandchildren, and Io, who is 10 years younger than Lily, were at my house, and it was my birthday. So it must have been 2019, because they were both there for my birthday. And they said, Grandma, let's watch, what's your favorite movie? Mm. And I said, The Way We Were. Mm. And I was... I watched it with them, and it was on a lousy TV, that's true, which has now been replaced, courtesy of. Um, But I was cringing watching it with them and thinking, oh, my God, this is so outdated and so, you know, uncomfortable to be watching with my granddaughters. Um, And Lily made a few comments about some of the parts of it that she found offensive, I think. Like what? I don't know. I can't remember. And when I was watching it today, I was trying hard to remember what made her uncomfortable or didn't, you know, because I think, I think, you know, she thinks women should be standing up to men. And of course, Barbara Streisand does, but there are parts of it where she doesn't, where she kind Mm -hmm. of gives in to him. Anyway, I was really happy to watch it today and be back in my original mood. Thank right. you. Okay. Well, back to my thing, which is that I, I'm sure that one of the reasons I avoided this movie all these years was because I thought, had always thought, that the politics of it, uh, you know, w- were the main thing. And I probably got that vibe oh. from you. I, well, first of all, that it's a romance, which is never, you know, as a, certainly as a boy growing up was not the thing I was interested in seeing at the movies. Um, but, but that it was going to be all this like, uh, political stuff and that these, uh, you know, that, that, that was the point of the movie was to portray, yeah. portray this era politically and the world situations and all about how the politics of that era affect these two people. Um, and, and that the, their, their characters were not the important part, although they, these are two people who were, you know fantastic to look at they're these movie stars but but that it's all about that that the reason you liked it is because here it is like this sort of like the pro-communist barbara streisand and she has this relationship with this tight you know tight-laced uh uptight wasp robert redford and it's about the friction and the chemistry between them but it's really important that all these things we learn about the house uh uh, uh un-american activities committee all that stuff which i didn't want I don't, I don't want to, I don't care. I mean, not that I don't care, but like I grew up with that stuff. I grew up going to all the, the peace marches and the demonstrations and, and, and got that 
got that political bent Mm -hmm. all through my childhood, whether I wanted to or not. And it's great. And I agree with it. And it's like right on. Fantastic. But I don't I'm not looking for that in movies. And what Hmm. I was happily surprised about seeing it was that that's not the case, that this is this is not a particularly political movie. Right. It's a romance, and it's the story of these two very sort of specific characters. And 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 not only is it not all about the politics, in, in fact, I want to say that it's pretty easy to look at this movie and consider all of this stuff, World War II, uh, uh, the communist stuff, the Red Scare, all that stuff, as, as almost like the MacGuffin in a Hitchcock sense, where it's like the thing that the characters care about, but we as the audience... We don't have to care about it at all. It's like, okay, this is the times they're living in. But it's really about these two people and their personalities and the way they are and the and and the dynamics between the two of them and and what what fuels their romance and what what ends their romance. Um, and in this in a similar way, I was happy to sort of discover that Barbara Streisand's character is sort of a melodramatic character person like she's you know fired up at all times and everything is like a crisis for her and she's prone to like all these strong emotions but that the movie itself actually avoids melodrama uh mm. in a larger sense for mo- I was surprised at how many things don't happen in this movie that neither one of them dies the you know they don't have she doesn't have a miscarriage there's all these things that in a typical sort of more uh old fashioned melodrama uh don't happen in this movie and it's sort of a basically matter of fact like here's where these people started here's where they finished these are all the good times they had and the bad times and that's that uh it's almost like the antidote to these douglas sirk and and uh and other sort of romantic melodramas that came before it and it's very it's weird reading about the movie afterwards this, today. I was like, oh, okay. People thought this movie was a mess and it went through all these uh, re-edits and nobody was happy with it. Nobody was happy with the screenplay and the rewrites of the screenplay and the screenwriter got tossed off the project and then brought back in after everybody else screwed it up. And then after the, a rough cut, they went in and redid all these things. I'm glad I didn't know any of that going into the movie because... For me, it was easy to like watch this movie and say, oh, this movie is doing all these interesting things and and leaving out all these things that would be explicit in, in earlier movies and, and, and again in later movies. But that this is a very sort of modern thinking movie in terms of its editing, in terms of what it shows and what it doesn't show. There's all this like off-screen action that you never see and that's something that I think more gets associated with Japanese cinema and Ozu and all. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, you don't see the birth of this baby. You don't see the affair that he has with Carol Ann or whatever her name is. There's all these things that are, like, implied and you sort of know happen, but you only know if you're paying attention to the movie sort of fairly closely. Like, I, it wasn't until the second viewing that I realized, okay, when they go to California, they've been married because she takes out this wedding cake topper and puts it on right. the shelf. But that's the only that's the only indication that you have that they are now legally wed. Yeah, and that seems a little sloppy to me. <laughs> right, and I, I get I that. A, In I retrospect, I, I, I get that. I have a completely different reaction, and I also have a different 
reason for not wanting to see this movie. Like the reason okay. I didn't want to see this movie was because I was like, oh, it's going to be schmaltzy. It's going to be corny. And when I was reading like the little thing about what was going on with, with the, um, with the blacklist, then I was like, Oh, I kind of want to see this now, you know? Cause I love <laughs> movies like the front. Yeah. I love guilty by suspicion, you know? And I was, re I'm really interested in the blacklist. So I was like, this could make it interesting. And I know in a way that's kind of the reason like all these people wanted to make this movie, you know, it make, it makes Redford and Pollock feel better about making, you know, schmaltzy romance that they can have that political angle. Right. The thing about this movie is it looks like it could have been made in the 60s. It's not hip. It's out of step with what was going on in the new Hollywood of the 70s. It's very nostalgic. You know, they're talking about World War II and the blacklist, and all that's a lot safer than Vietnam. But I think there's something pretty subversive going on here. You know, this idea that this quirky Jewish woman with a big nose deserves to be the center of a big romantic Hollywood movie, you know, that she deserves to be the object of Robert Redford's affections. I mean, there's this thing that that that's pretty radical, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but what makes it most interesting is that Streisand is the one who thinks that she doesn't deserve it. You know, like she keeps talking about like, I'm not good enough, you know, and she keeps these reasons. The reasons why she thinks she's not good enough are the way she looks, you know, not because she pushes so hard, not because she's almost a sociopath, you know. <laughs> it's just about yeah. the way she looks. And I think that's pretty interesting. And I think that's probably what drove a lot of people to the movie, M maybe subconsciously. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I get I, I think you're right. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, for whatever, for the, because of my history and my history, seeing Barbara Streisand and knowing of her, she's one of these things that was just yeah. in the air when I was born. Like, I think right. I was born with the knowledge of Barbara Streisand. And the movie that I the movie that I saw more than any other Barbara Streisand movie combined growing up was What's Up Doc, where she yeah. where she is this, you know, she's the Catherine Hepburn of that movie. And I realize Catherine Hepburn has her own sort of story about not really being a typical right. beauty or. But to me, Barbara Streisand was always like a bombshell sort of sex pot, like like leading lady. Like, so it's hard for me to sort of understand uh, that her description of herself in the way we were and the, her worries about like not having the right style, she keeps saying. Mm -hmm. And there's constant talk about her hair. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting, like her Jewishness doesn't isn't really explicitly uh, an issue with the other characters in the film. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I think, yes, it's all implicit. But it's How about not, her Brooklyn accent? But again, nobody is. But in all, she, she all seems the, more concerned with it than the other characters. Than do. the other, right? All the Beekman place people—they don't like her. But it seems clear that they don't like her because she's a pain in the ass and she doesn't right. find anything that they say funny, which is fair enough because a lot of the stuff they're saying isn't funny and they are assholes. But the thing that. The thing that rubbed me the wrong way when the movie first started was like how annoying and strident she is. Like she's on campus and she's not passing out leaflets in a sort of like positive way. She's like, you need to do this. It's all like bop, bop, bop. And there is not, there is no humor to her at first. And I was like, oh, brother. But then I, then I quickly realized, well, that's, that's 
that's the plot of this movie. Her stridency and her obnoxiousness is a major plot point in this movie. Like that's the problem. And I and I loved that. I was like, okay, great. They're they're not unaware of this issue with her character and perhaps even with Streisand in general, like as a screen presence. Yeah. You know, but I did, but I do find her absolutely charming. I think she's a great actress in this movie and in What's Up Doc and in in some other movies. I think eventually she slides into being like a self-parody and continue and then really does start taking herself in real life very seriously. You know, she becomes a director and she does all these vanity projects that are just like, oh boy. But I also thought after watching this movie, maybe I need to go back and re-examine these later Barbara Streisand movies because maybe I'm being unfair to her in her... You ready to watch Yentl? Is that what's going on? Well, even Yentl, I mean... I saw that in the theater. I don't think I've ever seen it since. But whatever the... What's the one in the mirror? Two two faces in the mirror or something? I the mean, mirror even has the two faces. One. Mirror has two faces. Yeah. And then the, the the one that I did catch Prince some of, of again, Prince of Tides. I caught some of that. I saw that in the theater, but I saw that maybe some of it last year. And I was like, whoa. What about this Nuts? Is, right. And Nuts. That's another thing. Like, I think yeah. she's taking herself way too seriously... But I think that in 1972 and 1973, like in those early 70s, that's Barbara Streisand's sweet spot. That's where she's using her talent, her comic talents to their fullest effect and where she seems self-aware enough of the roles that she's putting herself in and and the elements of, you know, I really appreciate that, that the self-seriousness of her character in this movie is not something that the other characters are unaware of, and it's not something that's not a problem. Right. Like, it is a problem in the it movie. It is. Like, her whole thing is a problem. And I was, it was shocking for me to hear her talk about and be so upfront about her looks and stuff like that, and, like, be my friend, tell me. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, I didn't expect this. But what about Redford? I mean, he's almost treated like an object here, and he yes. seems fine with it, you know. But uh, it's like he's almost fetishized by both Streisand and Pollock. But I think he fights back against that, and I think that he. It's interesting that you've said that she that she is insecure, and that she is insecure about her looks, and that she is the character who like says like I'm not good enough for you. But for me. That's his character. Like, the thing about this movie, and the thing that I think is the most interesting thing for me about what this movie is Redford's character, and that he is completely uh, um, insecure about his... Smarts? About his smarts and his talents as a writer. Yeah. And about his, his art. Um. I love all the stuff early on where we see Redford and he is socially awkward and stares at his pen or his pencil rather than look at anybody else in the room. He does that in the library when he's, I guess, writing this amazing short story. And he does that again in the classroom when the teacher is reading his short story. And he does wonderful, subtle things, I think, throughout that indicate his sort of unsure attitude about whether he is worthy worthy of her attention uh and and worthy of 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 making a living as a writer right i mean he's not socially awkward i mean he only gets awkward when it's pointed out to other people and to himself that he 
there's something going on underneath the surface, you know? Well, when he's out of his element, he's, he's perfectly comfortable with his wasp friends. But when mm-hmm. he's in the classroom and those are not his friends, that's not his element, he becomes, he is awkward. And I think, I read him as being, he's torn. I mean, there is a part of him that identifies with her stridency in the things that she believes, and then there's a part of him that is, this is how he was brought up, and these are his people, right? Yeah, and even then, I mean, the only person we really see him interacting with, other than her, in any real way throughout the entire movie, is Bradford Dillman's character, uh, J.J., and that's his best friend, and they have this sort of shorthand game that they play with each other all the time, this best thing um but other than that you know yes he he's he, he's on a surface level at home with all those beekman place people and he's he's comfortable at those parties he's able to sort of tune out the obnoxious conversations and the obnoxious jokes like if you when you see him at those parties in the beekman place things he's got a newspaper he's reading while the rest mm. of them are making jokes he's not actually participating he's not making jokes he's not laughing at the jokes he's just kind of sitting there he, he just I likes think the scenery he is, i think he is one of these secret introverts his character i think that he presents i mean he's clearly he knows he has to know that people see him as handsome and you know everything as he says in his story everything has come easy for him and he's aware of that but i do think that he is an actual more there there are subtle clues all throughout that he's as much an introvert as anything else and i know people like this that sort of like present as extroverts but really aren't and i think that i i I read this about sort of i'm not talking about you scott because i don't know that this is true but but rock stars all the time i remember joe jackson used to say like i'm a total introvert but i get on stage and that's my time when I can, when I feel comfortable really expressing myself and, and talking to people and, you know, but, but, but off Joe Jackson looks like an introvert. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, Uh, Redford was always happy to play with, you know, his all American image. I mean, Redford's main preoccupation was himself, you know, and his waspishness. And the thing that I didn't realize was that his part, like the screenwriter, what was the screenwriter's name? Arthur Lorenz? Yes. Uh, he, he had to be forced by Pollock to, to make Redford's character bigger than it was. Like he had right. no interest or very little interest in Redford. Um, right. And I still think that carries through. I mean, I think that, I think that Redford, Redford's character is more of an equal match Strictly because it's Redford on screen and he's looks fantastic and he's doing a great job acting. But I, you still feel like this is her movie. She's mm-hmm. the protagonist. Yeah. We're seeing everything from her perspective. But yeah. Lorenz is both her and Redford because he's the writer, you know, and, and so like both characters are him. And when you like see it through that prism, things get really, really interesting in this movie. Like all the stuff with the director and him being forced to, you know, bend his novel to, you know, the director's whims and to write these scenes that he doesn't believe in. And when you get into how he and Pollock didn't get along and Pollock took the movie away, you know, like that scene where 
Redford capitulates right. to the director. It's one of the best scenes in the movie. It, it is, and that's the that's the that's the clearest example of of Redford's character and his insecurity. Mm-hmm. He's not secure enough in his own uh, abilities as a writer to stand up to the director. He's ultimately like he's, he. He bows down, and then he bumps right into, what's her name, Carol Ann? Is that her name right. in the movie? And, Lois Childs. Lois, yeah. Lois Childs and has that, has that affair. Again, an off-screen affair. Another, Got to another his manhood. Yeah. But another thing about this movie that I do think is modern and cool is and it's not because they couldn't show the two of them having an actual sex scene. It's, they don't. It's like it's sort of a blink and you miss it kind of a mm-hmm. thing. Like, oh, okay, they're on the stairs. Maybe they're talking about getting together. And it really wasn't even until the second time I watched it that I was listening carefully enough to Barbara Streisand after the preview screening scene when she tells him she knows he's had this affair. Like, I, I know the first time I saw it, I caught on that she knew that, that it happened. But it, I realized, again, even that scene is sort of like they sort of talk around the fact right. that she knows he's had this affair. These are the things I, I appreciate about this movie that I never expected to. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't is- realize until the second time that he was confessing to JJ that he had an affair when they were on the boat. Oh, I like, still didn't know that. They both knew. <laughs> and he was like, whatever, you know, it, maybe it was the rum. And he's like, ah, you know, it's still wrong. And he's like, it's okay. You know, they're basically saying we're friends. We've kind of, you know, batted her back and forth between us over these years. But don't you think that's kind of Circean in itself? Like the way those movies couldn't, like part of this movie's nostalgic feel and appeal is doing those things, like not being so specific. Well, Cirque was doing it because he was really talking about stuff that he couldn't talk about. Right. There's nothing in this movie that they can't talk about. And are you you're saying that they're just that the, that the style of not saying yes. it is just a whole? I'm saying it's, it's a conscious decision to be nostalgic with this movie, you know, which was I think part of the reason why it was a big hit because people were like getting hit over the head with, you know, new Hollywood. I was like, let's go to old Hollywood. Yeah, maybe I get the sense that that was more of an editing thing where they're like, we have too much here. Yeah. How do we trim this down? And right. and and then 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 there was the complaint. I was reading Vincent Camby's review, and maybe we'll read it on this episode. But, you know, people, critics thought this movie was incoherent, and the plot made no sense, and there was all this stuff missing that should have been there, and it was all a result of these massive re-edits. And, you know, that could all be true. All I'm saying is I was able to appreciate this movie on its own term, on its own finished terms, and was sort of digging the fact that there's all this missing stuff that you kind of have to fill in, and... Mm. Um, you know, that it isn't so clear cut. And there are these there are these leaps that you have to take for yourself. And it's not just the plot points, but it's even in the style, uh, the editing style. Where you, you know, there's a few times where they give you a hint as to what year we're, we're in because yep. somebody types the, the, like he types the year on the draft of his screenplay that he's writing. And you occasionally see a newspaper headline that has a year. But I think it's remarkable that this movie never resorts to actually putting a date and time on the screen in some sort of, you know, typical, right. like now we're in 1947. And now, and, and there were very, there were very few sort of dissolves to indicate like a passage of time. A lot of times these passages of time that go from maybe months later to years later just happen as a hard cut. It's like, we're here, 
you know, we're in New York, boom, we're in California. Oh, it must, it's, you know, we eventually find out it's two years later and they're married and, and all this stuff, but it's not through traditional Hollywood filmmaking editing styles uh, of, of telling you those things. So I, I, I agree, I agree this movie is interesting and strange and probably not intentionally as awkward as it turns out to be. But I kind of love its awkwardness because it's this weird fusion of old-style Hollywood techniques and and tr- but also trying to be hip, new, hip and new in 70s. There are a couple of handheld shots that I think yep. are weird and out of place in this movie, yeah. but there they are. Um, you know, I you know, so for me, it's like I don't ultimately care why the movie is the way it is. I just kind of I'm happy that it is. I'm happy that it's this weird hybrid. I mean, I'm happy that it's a movie where there's that the first shot of Barbara Streisand in, in bed when she gets into bed with him after he passes out on her bed um, is as beautiful a shot of Barbara Streisand as I've ever seen. And maybe as beautiful a shot of a woman in a movie and her face as I've ever seen. It actually reminded me of the. There's that scene in Meet Me in St. Louis where um, Judy Garland is singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which I always think is like, wow, I, I cannot even believe the lighting in this movie. It's so gorgeous. She looks so amazing. And for me, like that shot of Barbara Streisand is right up there. It's like, whoa. They really, it looks like they spent five days lighting that shot. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, by the way, the, the reviews were mixed. I don't think, you know... No, Vincent Canby hated this movie. Yeah, okay, the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. but he wasn't the only no, critic. No, oh, no, right. I'm just saying that yeah. there were others who didn't hate it. Right. But there were no, like, four-star, you know, like, people reviews. raving about re- reviews. That's because they didn't ask me and my friends. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you well, like I love Well, I love the fact that this is a movie that was a hit and that is, is a lot of people's favorite movie but was not a critical success at the time. I, I haven't seen any, I haven't looked at like sort of like revisionist reviews from recent years. Mm-hmm. I don't know, has this movie like had a sort of critical reassessment? Scott, hmm. do you know? I don't know. I mean, big hits like this, they don't really usually get those critical reassessments, do they? Right, well that's the thing. That's 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 what annoyed me about Vincent Canby's review and, and, and I think that people complaining, I, I feel like, if this movie was not a Hollywood film and if this movie was a foreign film and come from somewhere, a lot of the things that people complain about in their contemporaneous reviews of this movie, they would have been raving about. They would have been, oh, this is so cool. In France, they don't worry about showing you this or that. And, you know, in Japan, you don't. It's so cool that Ozu will tell the story without you seeing the five major events that this movie is all about. Like, that's the same thing that happens in this movie for whatever reason, whether they just, the scenes didn't work and they right, cut right, them right. or not. But the ultimate result is like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, uh, for, for whatever reason, this movie has some weird ellipses in it. Uh, or as, uh, or as, uh, Barbara Streisand talks about synopsis. Is that a word? Uh, what, what is I, her I job was when she's in Hollywood? What, what is she doing? She's supposed to be reading novels and writing synopses. I think that's what I say. Is it synopsises? Is that the plural of a synopsis? No, I think it's, it's synopses. synopses. I think right. El- right. Ellipses, synopses. I think you, you could be mm-hmm. right. 
Yeah, well, so she's wrong. But she's supposed to be writing these synopses of these novels and passing <laughs> them along for people to decide whether they want to turn them into screenplays. But meanwhile, what she says oh. she's doing is making up her own stories. Like, she's not actually she's making up synopses of fake novels that she's invented. Oh, right. Okay. But she says they're not going to fire her because they don't even bother reading. It. You know, she's got this job that I think is basically because he's a screenwriter. And so they're like, oh, give his wife something to do. Yeah. Right, Lawrence like they Pokemon. do at university. Right. It's like a spousal hire. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, am I right that it's also beautifully filmed or is that just because I like how it looks? Um, I think it looks great. I mean, I, I do have those problems with those occasional, excuse me, handheld shots, but I think that that's another thing that I think, here's the thing. I think I'm glad I waited till now to see this. Because I think if I'd seen this in the 70s or the 80s, or especially like the 80s or the 90s or in the 2000s, I would have been much more annoyed about the way that they tried to make period films in the 70s, where they're not really... And it's the same thing that happens in every decade. It's sort of like, you know, you watch westerns from the 50s and 60s, and in the middle of every one of them, they got some young pop star singing like a pop song in the middle of this western. And they've all got sort of like DAs you know, hairdos in, in the Old West. And in this movie, I was going to ask you, Mom, about some of the set design and whether it really feels like it's authentic to the period. Like, her apartment seems to be littered with all these black and white photographs that feel like much more like the kind of thing she would have in an apartment in the 70s rather than in the 50s, in the 40s no, or 50s. No, I, I think I thought they got all of that right, okay. actually. And What the- about Robert Redford's hair? Right. That's another thing. Well, yeah. I was going to talk about the women's hair. The women's hair is all right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it all fits in. No. I mean, what were they going to do? Make him different than he is? Yeah, he you should know? have had like a crew cut. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. No way. No way. Um, <laughs> or office, or baby. much more like pomade, shiny hair, right. the way that... Uh, well, his friend, JJ, is more, looks more like... Right, but they weren't going to fool him. He probably wouldn't let them. Well, I think I, they do that a little bit more in The Sting with him, which was the I think it more. looks good, but I, I think it, like, if you had told me it was shot in the 60s, I'd believe you. I mean, it, except for the handheld shots, which I think are cool, because it's like, suddenly it's current. But most of it, honestly, it looks like it's a 60s, you know, road production. What, but, what okay. Calls? But what about, yeah, that's true. Yes, one of those roadshow productions. Roadshows, right, right. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's in CinemaScope, which is cool. But it also, it also, more than most movies, even in the 70s, seems like they had one, one half of their brain was like, we know this is going to be on TV soon, so let's make sure that we've got plenty of space on either side. So when they crop it for TV, those pan and scans must have been brutal to watch. But movie? but I don't but not for I don't think for this movie because I th- yeah I mean I think you lose out on all this cool background stuff but I think they mostly keep the action and keep the characters within that frame I think mm-hmm. most of these sort of over the shoulder shots would still work in a in a four by three I think let's talk about those montages all right uh, well and, let's and talk about really those montages but let's get really, into it by saying the thing that most the thing that this movie won awards for and the thing that this movie almost seems like it's a vehicle strictly for this one thing yeah. and what's really remained throughout the years is this song mm-hmm. they really hammer that song home don't they all right and it's my least favorite part of the whole thing 
But I also felt watching it a second time that if they had just held off on her vocals, which I think are the, is the is this part of the song I don't like. Not that Bar- not that Barbara Streisand can't. Of course she can sing. And it's Easy. not my favorite kind of singing style. Easy. But it's the it's the lyrics, which are the Allen and what's her name Bergman. She, those are oh, the bad Bre- lyrics. Or is it Bergman or Bregman? Bregman, maybe it's Bregman. But I also think that in trying to reevaluate hating it so much, I thought maybe if this had just been the instrumental thing up until like the end credits, and I think maybe as a melody, the Marvin Hamlish part of the song, at least as a orchestral soundtrack, is probably probably would be great. Maybe it is. I don't know, but there's that a ton scene, of it, man. That one where they do it in sort of the Liberace fashion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is over the top. But yeah. the scene where they're in the sailboat and it comes in and it's just mm-hmm. like really sweeping works. It's pretty good. Yeah. And I think when they bring it in at the very end for like their final embrace, um, I think there's a final embrace. What? Are, there's some. There's something at right. the end where they bring it in instrumentally and I was like, okay. This works. Well, we were talking about Smoking the Bandit on the last episode yeah. and how you thought that that was going to start with you know, right. Eastbound and Down and didn't. Right. It seems like this movie gets to have its cake and eat it too. Like it starts with this, you know, like sort of proto New York, New York opening. And mm. then you're like, oh, I, I thought it opened up the other way. And then 10 minutes later, it does open up the way that you thought it was going to. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that that's another reason that, of course, I love the movie is because it's in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love all movies that have um, footage of New York because, and the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, come on, can't yeah. get much better than that. It's like a time um, machine. Yeah. But let me just throw something out at you. What do you get? What did you guys get from it in terms of relationships? And people. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> because I wanted to ask Scott the same thing. I, I you know, this is a movie about, the, more than anything else, this seems to me it's a movie about this kind of relationship that happens where there's one of the, one of the two people in a relationship is an artist or does something creative. And this other person is as much as anything else, a booster and like a, not so much a muse, but like a supporter of, and like a, like a really like intensely into that other person's art. And I've had relationships with people who, you know, have enjoyed the things that I do, like, you know, songs I've written or whatever. But I think that the, that the, that the more, most serious relationships I've had in my life, the, the, the people that I've had them with, uh, don't give a shit about my art. And and so I think I'm more drawn to somebody who doesn't care what it is I'm doing uh, with my creativity and like, you know, could take or leave anything that I've written or done or said or, mm. you know, or been famous for. I mean, it's, it's, it. It, you know, it's interesting that like, it seems like he, he's, he needs her to, you know, keep propping him up, you know, to keep sort of clapping for him. But I think it also turns him off. Puts well, a lot of pressure on him. Yeah, yeah. She pushes. <laughs> yes, she does. But you know what, Ben? When you, I said relationships, I wasn't. I mean, it's interesting to hear what you have to say. But I think that what the relationship, what when people ask me, for example, how did I stay married for fifty-three years? 
um, I tell them two things. I tell them because we lived in a big house, <laughs> and that's very helpful, <laughs> and because we had the same values. And I think that for me, watching this movie, that's so clear. You know, these two people fell in love. They're very attracted to each other, but they don't have the same values. Yeah. There are different values, and if you don't have the same values, it's really hard to stay together. Um, you know, you've got the extremes, and she's a very extreme person, but it's clear that his, his values are different. Well, his values are different in what way? Well, he's, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't think, he doesn't take on personal responsibility the way she does. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, um, it's a very Jewish thing. I mean, other people take on personal responsibility as well, but I do think that, um, I once had a therapist who told me that her Jewish clients were the people who were, took on the most personal responsibility of any people that she ever had as clients. And she attributed it to the experience of the Holocaust because we were raised to think that every, each of us is responsible for everything mm -hmm. that goes on. And I think that that's the difference between them. She, you know, Barbara Streisand thinks that she can influence everything, that individuals can make a difference in the world, and he doesn't. He doesn't think that. He doesn't take it in the same way. He doesn't live the same way. Maybe his angst about everything coming too easy to him is a, a put-on, and it's bullshit. And he's, he, he likes that things are easy, you know? And he pretends that he doesn't like it because it makes him feel better about, about liking it. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It makes sense. I don't have that same read as either one of you on his character. I do think I think that he is a good person. I think that he does have the same values. I think this is again part of what I described as him being an introvert, but it's probably a little different than that and more than that is that he I think feels things probably as deeply as she does, but he doesn't want, it's not comfortable for him. And so he puts himself at a remove. She's too much for him. He can't live that way. He, it's too painful for him. And so this is what she says to him about his book is that he sees all the people at a distance. Right, he removes watching. himself right. from the situation, not because he doesn't, have the values and doesn't know what's right and wrong and doesn't agree with her about what's important and what's unimportant. It's that he sees, he, I think he, he thinks he would uh, implode or collapse if he lived his life, you know, with, with having his heart on his sleeve and, and, and committing himself to actually try to do something about the problems. But the that's world. one of her values is that, is that she has to try and do something, and it's not one of his. I'm not saying that philosophically he disagrees with her. I guess I don't see that as a value, but oh, I guess what, I, okay. I understand what you're saying. Right. Right. He also doesn't see his kid. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's the part of the movie that I'm like, the most maybe sort of, I don't really understand what they're, is this, a is this because it's a period piece and this is what would happen? back in the day where a guy could completely remove himself from this or before the internet yeah right or what are they saying about him and i think it 
I think it goes hand in hand with this thing. It's like he he can't get he can't connect with his daughter. Like she, you know, she, she's in the hospital bed and she's like, "Have you seen her?" And he s- says, "Yeah," and he has nothing really to say. He right. says she's, she's small. Little. Yeah. Right. Right. That's another bit that New York, New York took took from this movie, which I had no idea. I mean, I knew New York, New York was a Star is Born rip, but I didn't realize it took from this movie as well. Hmm. You know what movie this reminded me of and I thought was interesting in, in its similarities was La La Land. In that it's also, mm-hmm. you can also read this movie as this story of this couple that have this intense romantic attraction but ultimately don't stay together because uh because they choose their in la la land it's their careers and and in this it's not quite their careers it kind of is it's their whole lifestyle way of living but it but i i think this would be a pretty interesting double feature with la la land and umbrellas of cherbourg well, yes, that's the, that's the missing piece of the triangle. The tragedies of these movies is strictly this intimate, emotional, like these are two people who we wish would stay together because they seem like they're so right for each other, even though they're wrong for each other. They, they don't get together and, you know, there's a kid. And you know what this kept reminding me of? And I'm not sure if it was just because of James Woods, but it kept reminding me of Dr. Zhivago. Um I mean, I kept expecting James Woods. Was James Woods in Dr. Zhivago? He looked like he was a character in Dr. Zhivago. Oh, he 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 looked like he was a character in Dr. You know, I kept expecting him to turn up in the second half as the head of the Un-American Activities Committee. Yeah, right. But... uh, but Well, it is great to see James Woods as a communist in a movie. That's... Yeah, there's that sweep to it, you know. Um, And I'm sure they were going for that as well as maybe some of that love story crowd... No. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Dr. Zhivago. It's another movie that I only like watch for. You've the first never time seen Dr. Zhivago? No, I I did, but only recently. Like it was really? another movie. Yeah, it was another movie. I avoided all of these epic romance things. Like they they had no appeal to me growing up at all. Just cuz mom liked it doesn't mean it was bad. Oh, did you like Dr. Zhivago? Of course. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't that fond of Planet of the Apes, though. No, I know you weren't. Here, but I, 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 here's here's my this is this is what I kind of wanted to say about my mom is that like you know for for me who I've been sort of movie obsessed for most of my life like that again, I'm as close to you as I am to anybody in the world. But we but movies have never really been a part of our relationship at all, and I never I almost never went to movies with you growing up. Right. Your grandparents took you, your father took you. Right. Yeah. But I do remember walking down the street with you to Newkirk Plaza, and I don't know how old I was, but I remember like describing the entire plot of all five Planet of the Apes movies and explaining to you the whole oh, time loop brother. thing and how like yes, at the end of Beneath it's Charlton Heston, he blows up the world, but the thing is then the third one, we're like back in nineteen seventy three and it's because Zira and Cornelius have escaped in the spaceship oh, and but God. it all it all feeds into itself. And I remember explaining that to you as a kid. And was I, I listening? I don't know. I was, ho- I was thinking you must be impressed by this, but like, probably not. You were probably thinking of throwing him off of a bridge. <laughs> right. I was probably thinking, thank God he has grandparents who are willing to go to the movies with him. Right. right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you're not listening. At the end of the second one, he's back. 
I get it. All right. I'm going to run through some of these notes. So I liked seeing... Um, so this is Sidney Pollack, uh, one of his early, I don't know, successes. Uh, but I liked seeing this guy, George Gaines, who plays the... I guess he's like the maitre d' at this El Morocco restaurant where he doesn't want them to get in. Uh, He ends up having a major part in Tootsie. He plays the soap opera actor who's like the lecherous doctor and he's lecherous off screen as well. And And he plays Henry in Punky Brewster. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Henry. He has a lot of... And he's also in most of the Police Academy movies. Yes. But it's nice to see that Sidney Pollack remembered him from this and brought him back for tips. Yeah, that's crazy. And then it was also fun to, so as I said, it's fun to see James Wood as, Woods as a communist. Uh, now, Vivica Linforce is somebody who I, and she's the older communist. I don't really understand what her, what she does for a living in this movie. Do you, Scott? I don't, there's a lot of her on the cutting room floor, obviously. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I knew her when Creepshow came out. She's in the original Creepshow. Oh, does she play? Uh, She's the one. I got my cake? Yes. Yeah. And I remember people making a big deal out of Vivica Linforce is in Creepshow. Like a, she was some known entity. Like that was the big star they got for, uh, for Creepshow. And I remember thinking, like, okay. I don't know her from a hole in the wall, but okay. If she's something I'm supposed to be excited about, great. But quite honestly, this is like maybe the first time I've bumped into her. Are since you two going to watch Creep Show later on tonight? <laughs> no. Although my mom is a Stephen King fan. Oh, you got to see Creep Show. Yeah. And then Lois Childs, who they yes. also make a big deal out of in this movie, but but I don't know what did she do? She was she turned in, she went she was in Moonraker right after she was this. in Moonraker again. We're talking about Moonraker. Yeah. Um, she was in Broadcast News. Oh, is she? Uh, what does she yeah, do in Broadcast News? She's the one that wants to have a thing with, with William Hurt, and she asks Holly Hunter if she minds. She goes, no, I don't mind. She goes, wait a minute, I do mind. Right? And then they have oh, the, the thing okay, together. Oh, okay, right, right. Okay, so the stuttering thing. I, I looked this up, and here's the thing. It's because of this song from the 30s that was called Kukukka Katie. So what Bradford Dillman is doing throughout this movie is referencing this dumb novelty song. There you go. There's right, the answer. There you go. I thought for sure there was like some scene where Barbara Streisand stutters and he's making fun of her the whole time, but no. That's what I thought. But yeah, that, that makes sense. Thank you. Sure. What school... I guess Lawrence went to Cornell, so th- I think that this school's sort of supposed to be Cornell. It's, it was shot at Union College. Have you ever been? Um, I may have. I may have done the tour when we, remember when I took your high school girlfriend and Barbara, your sister, on a tour of colleges? It's in Schenectady. So I, wasn't, I, don't I wasn't on that no, tour. No, you were not invited. Um, Union College is where it was shot. Hmm. Because they lost the, the they rights lost, to shoot. They lost yeah. access to Cornell, and there was another one that they were going to use. Oh, really? Oh, that I didn't too. know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this movie was in development for a long time. And, it, you know, it wasn't supposed to be Redford. They, they, they wrote this thing with Ryan O'Neill in mind. Right. But strangely enough, 
and I don't know, you know, Wikipedia, who knows? Because they say, but the the affair between Ryan O'Neill and Streisand was petering out by the time they shot this and they didn't want any tension on the set. And so they ditched O'Neill. But meanwhile, Streisand and O'Neill were in movies again after this, the main event. Oh, the main event. Yeah, well, look what happened to that one. No, I'd rather not. But yeah. Um, I think Pollock wanted Redford, you know. Yeah. I think they were buddies by that point, and, and that was that. I mean, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Yeah. I like Ryan O'Neill, but I can't imagine this movie without Redford. Very different movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all these party scenes, and this is another thing that strikes me as more 70s than 30s or 40s. The party where they all have to dress up as Marx Brothers. That seems to me like something that's very much like would have been happening in the 70s, but maybe not so much in the... That is a bad, bad scene. (laughs) It's like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls without the wit. Yeah. Yeah, none of the party scenes work for me, but it's surprising to me to add up how many there actually are. Between the prom and the Marx Brothers and the two or three Beekman Place get-togethers and then the... um, the sort of get together at the director's house in the backyard with croquet. There's all these mm-hmm. parties, and, oh, and and then the party, the screening party, uh, uh, the Marvin into the wiretap thing, and yeah, uh, and Marvin I Hamlish think... is there. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's oh, he's funny. at that party. Oh. I think that that's what rich people did. Yeah, you think that what? I think that's what people with money did. They had lots of parties and cocktail parties and. Yeah, You know, I don't think it's about when it took place. I think that that was always the case. Yeah, in New York you had, uh, what was the the writer, and they all had those parties, the the, the Algonquin Round Table. Oh, yeah, right. right, right. And then in L.A., you know, I mean, that is a party town. Like, you know, the bars close so early, everyone's going to house parties. Right. I mean, that's right. all they do in L.A., Right. Yep. Uh, but at the prom, it's interesting to me that James Woods takes out a bottle of, I don't know, vodka or something. It's gin. Gin. And then she says, oh, we're drinking <laughs> from the bottle that's so bourgeois. And is that? It. I don't understand. How would that be considered bourgeois? I don't know. And how? And she didn't even know. She goes, what is this, bourbon? She doesn't know the difference between oh. gin and bourbon. But wait oh, a minute. But here's something I really need to ask my mom. Oh, Scott, you might know too. But her drink of choice that we find out right away from that Herb Edelman guy is a Dubonnet on the rocks. Mm. And that's something that? that I remember Grandpa used to order all the time. Yes. But what the what is a Dubonnet? I don't know. Well, you're asking me who doesn't drink Is anything? that a liqueur or I is it just a, a brand liqueur. of bourbon? No, I think it's a liqueur. It's clearly something. That oh, you, you don't know what it is, Scott? Okay, people know, know about, but... Not you. I'm not one of them. Okay. Dubonnet. Hang on. Let's is see. it like a... Uh, it's, an, it's, yeah, it's an aperitif. Is, is it yes. like a Manischewitz type of thing? No. <laughs> no. Uh, what does Dubonnet taste like? Served straight, Dubonnet has a viscous mouthfeel and a spicy, fruity taste. This something is, like... Yeah. Here it is. And this makes sense to me. It's something like Campari. Okay. Something like Campari meets a sweet vermouth. There you go. All right. Sounds terrible. Yeah. What is she drinking on the uh, when they're on the beach? 
uh, and she's sitting there um, on their deck. And, I mean, it's it's in a like a little. It looks clear. I don't know if it's like some kind of cocktail. When uh, when he's running on the beach and she's yeah. sitting there smoking, I don't know what she's drinking. Yeah, I'm just interested that she's smoking and was wondering, did Streisand smoke with that voice? I can't imagine. She's trying to fit in, uh, so she's drinking these cocktails, smoking, ironing her hair. I like that um, that on the second time viewing, you know, that she she ends up having explained at least three times in the movie that she irons her hair. But I like that on repeat viewing, I realize, oh, it's that starts off with her ironing his his dress right. uniform, and he says, "You don't have to do that." And she says, "I like to iron," and then it turns well, into uh, a whole running gag. About but she her. doesn't, right? She doesn't iron her own hair. People do not. No, iron no, her I understand. Hair. Okay, I know just, she wasn't just making sure. <laughs> Did you did you iron your hair? No, Mom? I didn't iron. You, I've seen pictures where your hair was straight. Yes, because I didn't iron my hair, but um, I used to I used to use rollers that were as big as this can of Dr Pepper. That's what we did. We rolled our hair in these things, and, and that made it less curly. Yeah, it straightened it out. It was very 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 curly, and your father could not believe that I would sleep in these things. And I'd put them in at night, and he would go around and he would put silverware through them because he thought it was just so funny that I had these big can-like things on my head. But yes, it straightens your hair. He's putting silverware in your hair? Well, in the rollers. While you're sleeping? No, not while I was sleeping, before I okay. would get into bed. You know, he's, he's trying to be funny. No, I, Make, I get Making it. fun of me. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, we just saw a movie where Trish Vanderveer reveals that her husband pooped in the bed. So, well, that's true. <laughs> do we, Scott? Do you see way... that my mom, just like your dad, with his fishing shirt, she has a whole collection of t-shirts, but hers yes. are all sort of like resistance I, I noticed right away. Yeah. <laughs> right. See, and this is the thing about Barbara Streisand, and she would this character would have been completely and totally appropriate from 2016 till 2020. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like. Those are the people that you need and you still need. Oh, I was thinking that it would be great to, for somebody to do a Way We Were remake. Like, you know, in, 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 yeah, that takes place in this past decade. With who? Well, that's where everything falls apart. But what about... It breaks down, right? Uh, I mean, Kate Winslet's too old now, I guess. Oh. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't... The actors, I, that's, I, that's beyond me at this point. But I mean, Brad Pitt could have, you know, stepped in for. Yeah, he's probably too old now, too. Yeah. Do we, by the way, JJ comes around to Katie? Well, that feels like it's on the cutting room floor or something. Hmm. Okay. Like suddenly they're, yeah, suddenly they are fine with each other. And I'm like, what, when did this happen? But again, I was like, again, not knowing the production history, I was like, oh, this is another cool thing. Like these things just happen. It's like this whole serial comic thing. And you just need to keep filling in the blanks. And and I usually don't like that. I usually like things a little more spelled out. But for some reason, I was kind of happy to sort of have to make these leaps and try to figure out, wait, how long has it been since this? And, oh, they're this way now? Okay. Like, none of that stuff bothered me. I think the movie's better knowing it's troubled production. I, I, I really enjoy watching it through that glass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And did you know... Arthur Lawrence adapted Rope for Hitchcock. Yes. And at the time, he had a thing going with Farley Granger. Yes. 
That's but pretty that, fascinating, but too. But then Hitchcock offered him two more movies, including... Um, Trouble with Harry. And but what's the one with... Um, was it Trouble with Harry? Or was it no, else? there's uh, Iron Curtain was Torn one Curtain. of them. And maybe the other one was... Uh, I don't know. Not such great Hitchcock movies, but Lorenz was like, I don't have any interest in these things. Yeah. Hitchcock was having trouble getting his guys by that point. Yeah. Well, that's it for my actual notes. All right. Mom, anything else about the way we work? Nope. Here, what do you I'm think gonna... of uh, A Star is Born? Did you like that? I didn't see it. What? Well, he just told you that I'm not a moviegoer. I, I, yeah, my husband went to the movies a lot. And, and when there were multiplexes, he liked to go and hop from one theater to the other. And I can't mm. sit still that long. It's not, it's just not right. part of my nature. But I all of my children. You, other than taking us to the movie set, like I forced you to go see Benji for my birthday. I don't know that you ever went to another movie in the whole decade of the set. I did not go to a lot of movies. I was busy raising children. Um, but all of my children love movies. And, um, and now, and then, well... We started a tradition. You always go to the movies on Christmas. Yeah. If you're Jewish and you live in New York, you go to the movies and you go for Chinese food. But that was not yeah. a tradition growing up. We went for Chinese <laughs> food, but not, we never... Oh, I guess we would go to Radio City Music Yes, Hall. we did certain things on Christmas What about The Day. Godfather? I don't think I saw You didn't go it, see know? The Godfather either? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I'm sure you did. Just, just trying to yes. connect the dots between you and my mom. These were all her favorite movies. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, is she? So. How old is your mom? Uh, she passed away last year. Sorry about that, Scott. Yeah. What, how old was she? That's okay. 74? So she and I are the same age, about the same okay. age. I'm 76. Yeah. yeah. But no Godfather, huh? Honestly, no. the only other story I know about my mom in movies is being dragged to see them. Because her brother, her older brother, wanted to see them. Yes, movie. that probably turned me off movies altogether, them? right? The Ants movie. The, the movie about ants. the ants? Yeah. Right. Wow. And I was a little kid at the time. Pretty scary. Yeah. 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 And I grew up, I mean, going to see that movie was probably one of the few movies. We didn't do things that cost money because we didn't have any money. So mm. it must have been a big treat for my brother that we went, maybe it was his birthday, I don't remember. But, um, but movies were a cheap thing to do. It doesn't matter if you don't have money. You don't have money. Um, you can't do those things. Don't argue, Ben. <laughs> All right. I'm going to read you this Vincent Cambry review, and then I'm going to show you what was playing that week. And we can figure out if my mom was even tempted by anything else in the theaters that week. That sounds good. That sounds and like I'm gonna, a good And I'm going to screen share it with you, Scott, because, you know, we don't have to play it as a game. Oh, just when I was getting good at it. The only thing that limits Barbara Streisand as a movie superstar is that she's not really an actress. Already you're wrong, Vincent Camby. Not even much of a comedian. Wrong, Vincent Camby. She's an impersonator. When the impersonation fits the contours of the public personality, tough, driving, ambitious, shrewd, self-mocking, the performance can be effective as it was in Funny Girl. Now, did you see Funny Girl and Funny Lady? I feel like you might have. No? No. Wow. Tough crowd. (laughs) 
And as it is for a short space of time in her new film, Sydney Pollock's The Way We Were, the movie opened yesterday at the Lowe's State and Tower East Theaters. So maybe you saw it at the Tower East, which I've never even heard of. I don't think so. Ask me how many Pete Seeger concerts I saw, or Joan Baez concerts. How many Bob Seeger concerts? How many Bob Seeger concerts did you go to? We didn't go to Bob Seeger, only Pete. (laughs) Okay. How many Pete Seeger concerts was I dragged to, is the question. Well, you were dragged every Thanksgiving to Arlo, well, to Pete at Carnegie Hall, and then Arlo and Pete, and yes. There was a lot of Judy Collins in our house. Mm-hmm. A lot. Judy Collins was like second tier for my parents. Yeah. yeah. There was, it was Pete. There was definitely, it was Pete Seeger and Joan Baez were at the top echelon of need to see every time they... No Seeger and Baez in our house. Really? We were, yeah. They were, it was, uh, it was Judy Collins. That was the... That was the thing that broke through to Midwest household. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sorry to interrupt you. I had no say in it. Well, nor did Ben have any say. Yeah. No. And by the time 1977 rolled around and we were going cross country, (laughs) there there were huge fights over what music would get played in this sort of jacked up van that we had that... uh, Nine weeks worth of traveling. Oh. Yeah. But and the adults won. <laughs> and it was like, a, yeah, it was like it turned into like a sort of a 10 to 1 ratio of music my dad wanted to listen to versus the cassette that he would allow us to put in the player. Like once. Which was? I don't know. Just like a mixed tape that we would somehow have yeah. made. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe we didn't even have music back in those days. Yeah, we did. But I'm going to say maybe as, as kids we didn't. Yeah, I don't remember. There's just been like Beatles or something. Um, Beatles. Yeah. Right, which my parents were not into. They were not into, they were into folk music. They were not into pop music at all. Too bourgeois. Yeah. Well, your father was into more, had a much broader, remember I'm tone deaf, so so the words mattered to me. So I was Mm. into folk music, but he was into all kinds of music, really. Yeah, he had a much broader. So is that tone deaf? You can't appreciate the melody. That's I never heard that. Right. I thought you just couldn't sing the melody. Well, well yeah, you too. can appreciate the melody. You yeah. like song. You you like music. You just can't sing. Right, music. right. I can't, and I also can't differentiate. So, for example, I had to take a music class in college, and I failed it because you had to mm-hmm. hear. You had to be able to hear the differences or identify. I can identify music that partially from the words and the tune, but if it's tune, if it's wordless, it's harder for me to, I mean, I'm better as I've gotten older because one of the reasons I also stayed married is my husband encouraged me to sing, which Mm. nobody else ever did. Um, Mm. (laughs) So, yeah. And that meant a lot to you? Yes. Are you kidding? Of course. Well, words were just invented to get people to listen to music. So that's all that is. Oh, uh, okay. Words weren't invented for that reason, but you, you know what I mean. I'm screwing up a David Byrne quote is what that is. She doesn't know David Byrne. Right. Sorry. He used to be David in Bob Seger's band. <laughs> but, the, uh, but, but I would say that the, the thing that we haven't mentioned in this um, conversation is that, is that, we, that, that Broadway... And brought musical theater was a, was a 
part of my childhood because of your parents. Yes, and it was a part me. of my childhood too. So when so even though you didn't have any money, yeah, I was gonna say it costs money okay. to go to Broadway it's, shows. Okay, so let me explain. I'd like to hear this too. Right, City Center of New York. I never saw originals. You saw revivals that were at City Center, and you sat all the way at the top. So oh. what do you remember seeing? The King and I, all of all Rogers and Hammerstein, King and I, Carousel, uh, South Pacific, Oklahoma. Um, yeah. And at some point in my, you know, as I was an older teenager, there was money. It was, it was when I was very young from age, from the time I was born until I was maybe 15 or so. I mean, I went to college. Well, when I was 16, I went to college on a scholarship for poor Jewish girls. And it was then, it was after that, that grandpa's business took off and there was some money. But yeah, you know, you decide what you're going to do. All right, I guess we'll allow it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay, wait. Uh, The Way We Were, adapted by Arthur Arthur Lawrence. Oh, you're still reading this? Yeah. Okay. From his novel, looks like a 747 built around an elephant. It seems to have been constructed of prefabricated parts that were then bolted together as best they could, considering the nature of the cargo. Hmm. That's pretty good. I mean, it's a pretty good paragraph. I don't relate it to this movie particularly. The one thing I'll say about this movie, it's got this weird structure, which is very easy for me to believe as a result of like all the sort of triage they were trying to do in the edit, which is that it's got this, you know, it starts where it starts and then has this extended sort of 15, 20 minute flashback to college. And then, you know, and it starts where it starts and you think we're not going to get back to this scene with her finding him asleep in the bar until until the the end end of the movie. But that's not the case. And that college flashback is the only flashback in the movie. And it's hard for me to understand what how this makes the movie better or what purpose this sort of 20 minute flashback scenario serves. But uh, I don't know. It, ma- it makes it a little... I guess it makes it interesting because it keeps you on your toes as to if there's going to be more flashbacks or oh, these... Yeah, l- it's interesting, but, but you're right. Like, it... Yeah, I, I thought it would come back a lot later, but how could it? There's just no way. Right, but it also makes me think that the when originally shot or at least written, there, the, the, it was all chronological starts in co- it feels like it could easily just start in college and why doesn't it just start in college uh, I, don't, I, I don't know I mean that that's a good question but like some of those montages I was like yeah maybe this is them trying to make sense of all the footage but some of those scenes it looks like they're miming the bits so I, I have a hard time believing that those scenes were shot for any other reason than for the music to be played because like when they're pointing at the books and the magazines it's almost embarrassing there's no way that those scenes were dialogue scenes right i'm also i have to say i'm confused about their first bedroom scene where he's drunk i love that scene it's a great scene but it seems to me that the sort of the comic payoff and the whole payoff of the scene is that he falls asleep mid act but she Mm. seems a lot less concerned and the and downplays that part of it and concentrates on the facts that somehow 
when he passes out, it's then that she realizes that he probably doesn't even rem- know who he's with. Right. It's, that's a little, it seems weird to me. That seems like a scene that probably didn't play well with your daughter when she watched it. Ah, yeah, that's probably, was probably a Lily. Yes, I think so. Right. She's like, Grandma, I don't like that one. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, that wouldn't, yeah, she's, yeah. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, sure. The <laughs> uh, Streisand talent. Now he just now he's already gone ahead and said she's not this, she's not yes. that. She's just an impersonator. No talent. Now he says the Streisand talent is huge, eccentric, and intractable. When she goes one way and the movie goes another, it's no contest. The movie is turned to junk. Now I don't know. I'm not. That's not a movie that I saw. But hmm. Mr. Lawrence Story. Um, is about Katie Morosky, a humorlessly determined political activist and her lifelong love for good causes and a wasp of the sort that can only be true in romantic movies. Hubble Gardner, so blonde and talented that when Katie calls him America the Beautiful, you know she isn't kidding. Mm, okay, really? Katie and Hubble meet in college in the mid-1930s. Katie, her hair a wild souvenir of the, the era of the electric curling iron, is president of the Young Communist League, spokesperson for the Spanish loyalists, an implacable foe of the overprivileged, which means Hubble. Only it wasn't the curling iron that made her hair curly. Correct. It's like completely... He's completely wrong. Exactly. And she says, he not only has a roadster and is the top campus athlete, but also possesses the kind of writing talent Katie would like to have, but never will. Now, I don't think mm-hmm. he has a roadster until they move to Hollywood, and he's got like this British car with the... Steering wheel on the wrong side of the seat. Do we ever see him in a car before then? I can't remember. It's all these, blur. These early sequences of the movie are not all that bad. The period detail, though heavily laid on, is funny and evocative. More importantly, it's easy to understand why these two mismatched people could be so drawn to each other. Miss Streisand's furious determination is never very appealing, but it is comprehensible, as is Redford's essential weakness, which carries with it a good deal of unrecognized cruelty. Hmm. I don't know what that is. Interesting. <clears throat> the Way We Were may have some historical value as the first Hollywood film I can think of to employ the Red Scare of the late 40s and early 50s as a plot device of no more believability than an auto accident. <laughs> an extraordinary... Look on your face after you read that line. It's pretty good. <laughs> an extraordinary and very sad chapter in American politics is thus cheaply and futilely exploited. Because both Pollock and Lawrence have done good work in the past, I'm not at all sure they are fully responsible for the stylistic gaffes and narrative discontinuities in the finished film. Miss Streisand is a formidable star. It's difficult enough to accept her as a wronged wife, and it's ludicrous when the movie presents her photographed in the sentimental manner used on lovelorn movie heroines of the 40s. By some peculiar alchemy, the way we were turns into the kind of compromised claptrap that Hubble is supposed to be making within the film and that we're meant to think is a sellout. It is. It is? Yeah. Wow. He's right about the end. I mean, well, it seems like all the, it turns into basically what is happening in the production. It's like we get a peek behind what's going on with the production. You know, they're watching the movie and he, he's all the... the the things that he's done to, you know, add the scenes, they don't make the movie any better. You know, like all the... Yeah. 
Right. Well, I do. Yeah, I do love that. Like uh, that. That that preview that they watch. Everyone thinks is terrible, including the director right. who's made all those changes. Right. All all the. Uh, yeah. Right. Do he you have any sense of what? And it doesn't help, and that's why you should never sell out. Then the clip that we see that's the end of that movie within the movie looks like a real movie and it looks like yeah. it's Glenn Ford. Any idea what they're looking at there? I don't know. I thought you would know. No, I don't. This know. is the kind of thing that you would know. know. All right. So let's see. Playing that 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 day, October, Friday, October 19th, 1973 in New York City. Seems appropriate. Wait, what what is from the mixed up files of Mrs. Oh, you Basil can still see it, Frank Weiler. Yeah. That's a children's book that I'm familiar with, but I wasn't aware that they made it into a movie. Mom, no. any thoughts? No, I certainly didn't see it. Right. Day for Night? Yeah, yeah. Day for Night. MASH. Did you see MASH in the theater, no, Mom? I did not. Huh. But my mom was a huge fan of MASH, MASH the on TV, TV show. Yes. Ah. Was your mom into MASH on TV, Scott? It was there. I don't remember if she was... That crazy about it. She liked Lou Grant. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mary Tyler Moore also, or just Lou Grant? Yeah, but, uh, but uh, yeah, definitely. But Lou Grant, I mean, that's, that's a really strange um, spinoff, a really good spinoff, but completely different type of show. Really yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, Cops and Robbers is a movie that I know because the director is a guy who ended up teaching me film. Um, okay, I can only see half of that. Who's the director? Uh, you know what? His name isn't even in the ad. His name is Aramavakian. Oh, no, it is. It is. So Cops and Robbers, Truffaut's Day for Night. Mom, shout it out if you've ever seen any of these movies. Uh, the, the Paper, paper chase. chase. Oh, what a good movie. I think I saw The Paper Chase. That was a TV show, too, so are you No, sure? but I think I saw the movie. Okay. Now, Timothy Bott... Now, John Houseman continued his... You know, he made his whole career on The Paper Chase. Right. Uh, but who... But I don't think Timothy Bottoms was in the show. I Escaped from Devil's Island playing with The Outside Man. Those are two movies I don't think I've ever heard of. No, don't know them at all. Oh, look at this stuff. Last Tango in Hollywood? Yeah, people always said that the New York Times was careful about not running ads for pornographic movies, but that's not true. Last Tango in Hollywood next to Save the Children. There's some irony for you. Tarzan plus Duffy's Tavern. These are all just like adult. Now, <gasps> Peter uh -oh. Sellers and The Optimist. Boy, have you ever seen that movie? No. Oof. But, but, no good. Scroll up. Oh, yes. this was. I saw this and was excited for you, Scott. There we go. Look at that. Mean Streets. You and Oh, did you? Here's a movie you might have seen in theaters, I feel, Mom. What? Martin Scorsese's uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. With Ellen Burstyn, and she moves to like Phoenix or something. And Yeah, I think I did. There you go. My mom loved that one, too. Uh-huh. That's we a movie. That a lot. That's a movie when you go back and watch it now, you're like, oh my God, I forgot that he made a movie that was this funny. You know, that was like a straight out comedy. It's so great. It's not even a straight up comedy. There's no. a lot of facets. We should do yeah. that one of these times. Yeah, sure. Would love to. Uh, here's a strange double feature. Day of the Jackal and Take the Money and Run. 
That is a little strange, huh? <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say that because they did these kind of double features that don't make any real sense, like thematically, all the time in the seventies and sixties and fifties. But it's still here's kind another of strange funny double feature: that. Duck Soup and Horse Feathers. What do those movies have to do with each other? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, State of Siege, playing with the Conformist. Wow. Bloom and Love playing with Save the Tiger. Save the Tiger. Save the Tiger. Is that Jack Lemon? Yeah. Year of Year the Woman. Year of the Woman. No. Here's a name oh, I heard good. all the time growing up. My mom was a big Bella Abzug fan. Mm-hmm. You know her at all, Scott? She's a politician. No. What was she? What was the highest office she ever held? Um, she was a congresswoman. Like a New York State congresswoman? No, or? a congress congress. I'm pretty sure. Bella Abzug, congress. Yeah, yeah. okay. You know this anything about this movie? No. I'm looking at all the names there. Yeah. Wow. Documentary? Yeah, it must be some kind of like survey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Norman Mailer is in it. Ugh. What is Deer Throat? Well, that's another. That's a porno movie. Yeah, I know. But Deer Throat? <laughs> well, it was after Deep Throat. They, you know, it was like, what can we do that people will think is Deep Throat, but we can change one letter? Deer throat. And not get sued. Listen, I found out something last night about Milwaukee that I was unaware of. Is that outside of whatever basketball arena they have, they have something called the Deer District. Is that right? Which I guess is because the basketball team is the Milwaukee Bucks. Must uh-huh. be. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know that that was a thing, the Deer District. Pippi Longstocking. There you go. Yeah, that's a movie my, you might have taken no, us to. Or my grandma must have done. Yeah. Here's a movie I don't know anything about. Billy D. Williams and Richard Pryor in Hit. Ooh, yeah. I think that was showing on something recently. Directed by Sidney J. Fury. Mm, great name. Uh, a movie I don't know at all. Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams with Joanne Woodward. With the, the tagline, beautiful. Author, Rachel, Rachel. Beautiful, frigid, she is called a snow queen. Co-starring Martin Balsam. Imagine the sparks that flew between Joanne Woodward and Martin Balsam. Directed by Gilbert Cates, who became... Didn't Gilbert Cates wind up directing the Oscars for like 30 years? Hmm. Maybe. Roman Polanski's what? What is that? I don't know. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing. And it's rated X. Oh, man. I've got to see this. Yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. Ponty and Levine production. Here's another movie that I've avoided like the plague and I've never seen. Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, There's some good bits. Not a lot of good bits. Interestingly directed by Norman Jewison. Yes. Well, Jesus was a Jew, so... Uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo in The Inheritor was playing. Uh, Nureyev's Don Quixote. This can't be a movie, is it? It's probably, this was probably an actual Nureyev performance. Oh, yeah. Is that Tully Hall? No, Hmm. it is a movie, because they're saying it's the premiere, but in person will be Nureyev. But he, they wouldn't have to tell you if it was in person, if it was an actual... Live right, performance. it's it's it's, it's a movie. The it's a filming of a yeah. performance. Oh, he was a real thing back then, wasn't he? Oh yeah, bang the drum slowly. I've never seen. 
Isn't that with De Niro? Yes. I haven't seen it either. Oh, we should check that out. I know, I know. Now, here's one of my favorite movies of the 70s that I did go see that was taken to by my grandparents. Your my mom, mom loved mom. this one, too. Paper Moon. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, you did? Yes. In a theater with us? I don't know. I don't know if it was with you or just with Daddy, but I did see it. Do you like it. it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Look at Walter Matthau, Charlie Varick. That's a great movie. Yeah. Okay, Massacre in Rome is a movie I've never heard of with the SS... S's. <laughs> Who wouldn't stop it? <laughs> uh, American Graffiti, which uh, I don't know if I saw it on its original release. You know, that was a movie that seemed to play throughout the entire 1970s. So I probably saw American Graffiti three three or four times in theaters, but I don't know if it, I saw it in 1970. I don't think I realized what a big hit it was when I was growing up. Really? I, 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 I didn't. Did you see it growing I, up? No, but I, I almost f- feel like I, I kind of almost didn't realize George Lucas had done anything before Star Wars other than THX 1138. Huh. So do you think you saw THX 1138 before you saw American Graffiti? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe. I remember that movie. I don't think I saw it. I think it was something I was always trying to get Grandma and Grandpa to take me to, but I don't know that I ever did get to see it. Because it was French. Okay. And maybe they knew that and I didn't, and Mm -hmm. they knew like I would be annoyed with the subtitles. That is a pretty French silhouette. Yeah. Uh, Ooh, look at this. Now this is exciting (laughs) to me. An ad for Brian De Palma's sisters. Oh, I I was looking at Summertime Killer. Oh, what? I didn't get to that yet. I cannot remember a recent thriller that was close-up bloodier than Sisters. Keep reading. Or scarier, or funnier, or more effective. Its combination of humor and horror makes Sisters a scream. Don't hide from Sisters. It's a really... No, it's really a good movie. It is really a good movie. Sisters, I know I saw with uh, my father. Um, But I'm I'm sure it was a revival. Like it was on a... You know, it was like at a... It was at like a revival house with something else. Uh, or I feel like we saw it. We weren't even in New York. I think we were on vacation somewhere and we saw it was playing. Yes, and it was, yeah. I think I saw The Conversation. Two movies I saw with my dad in some random town, maybe Ithaca or something. Sisters, I remember seeing with him and being like, oh, God, this is fantastic. And um, The Conversation. You know, I was probably like eight years old when we saw the conversation. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Summertime Killer. Now that we're up to it. Do you know anything about this movie? I've never heard of this movie, Scott. I don't. But this is what I thought you were saying was exciting. Well, it, it looks is. exciting. Carl Malden. Olivia, Olivia Hussey. Hussey. Oh. <laughs> what about Romeo and Juliet? Yeah, what about it? I mean, that was a big, huge romance too, right? Yeah, Romeo and Juliet. They used to try to show us in grade school. Like yeah, they would have. Saw, like I saw a, it in grade school too. Right. The nudity was a little weird. Well, Ozu's Late Autumn. I think I was just talking. Well, I was talking about this movie the other day because we were showing Tokyo Story, mm. and Katie, my wife, was reminding me that we'd seen another Ozu 
at work a couple of years ago. We couldn't remember what it was, and it turned out it was late autumn. Oh, zoo. Uh, the sex shop, I don't know anything about. Enter the, look, at that, look at this great ad for Enter the Dragon. Uh, who is that? I have no idea. Is that supposed to be Bruce Lee? I guess. It's a really bad... Now, it's playing with something that seems to be saying it's the sequel to Cotton Comes to Harlem, which I thought was, I thought I knew, but Come Back Charleston Blue? I'm not familiar with that title. I wonder if they changed the name of this movie before it actually got released. Warner Brothers 50th anniversary. That was a, looked like that was a big deal. Now, the spook who sat by the door is a book that I remember we had in our house. It was a paperback that was sitting up on the third floor. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, it was like, the spook referred to like a CIA agent. I never read the book, but... And I guess I don't even know if I realized it was a movie. Well, here's something. Here we Clockwork Orange. Did you see Clockwork yes, Orange? I did. In a theater? Yes. Wow. What was that like? It was scary, as I recall. <laughs> I mean... Did you see that with Daddy or with yes. Sharon? No. Oh. I saw that with your father. Yeah, there were some things that he insisted that I go see. That was one of them. Now, I thought it was rated X. It says here that it's rated R. Oh, look, because you know what it is. Look, it's because I think they did this with a few movies. They did an R recut. Look at this ad. It says the people who want to see a Clockwork Orange have already seen it. This presentation is for the people who don't. Oh, wow. Despite its great commercial and artistic success, we believe there is still a sizable number of people who disapprove of Clockwork Orange and decided not to see it. This attitude is typified by famed film director Louis Benoit, who recently stated, A Clockwork Orange is my current favorite. I was very predisposed against the film. After seeing it, I realized it's the only movie about the modern world, about what the modern world really means. Louis Bunuel would have had a problem who the with A Clockwork Orange. Uh, that's a goofy ad. I wonder if Kubrick like, designed that ad. Uh, heavy, heavy Traffic... traffic is uh, Ralph Bakshi. And I remember one of the few movies, I, I, I usually talk about the fact that one of the few movies that I wasn't allowed to see when it came out was Dawn of the Dead because that was also rated X? Or was that NR? Yeah. No, it was rated X, right? I think it was X. Uh, because of violence. Right. Yeah. And you were like, no, you're not doing it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but another movie that I was heavily discouraged from seeing was Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Ooh, well, that was because I think it had it? like Nazi iconography even in the ad. Really? Yeah, I think so. Or in the commercial, I, I don't that, know why. I, I don't think, think I've ever PG. seen. I, to this day, I don't think I've seen Wizards. Yeah, it didn't. It, it didn't make any sense. I mean, it wasn't. I don't know what. I don't know what the discouragement was about. You're not missing much. No, I don't. Yeah, I've never. I, Ralph Bakshi. I don't care about Ralph Bakshi. Touch of Class. Theory. That's a movie. I. That's one of these movies that I saw on TV, which is interesting because it's rated PG. But I really remember it was one of those movies that when it was on TV was like adult themes and blah 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 and like you know, yeah. viewer discretion is advised. Do you remember that movie, Mom? 
I feel like I saw that Yeah, movie. I know. I think yeah. you did, too. Now, this is a movie I've never heard of. Yeah, I was just Visions of about Eight. This. For the first time, a movie captures the human drama of the Olympics. Huh. So this looks like some weird... They, they gave all these directors a shot at some footage from the Olympics and turned them loose? I don't, I don't know. Claude Lelouch, John Schlesinger, Arthur Penn, Milos Forman, with original music by Henry Mancini. I, I need to investigate. Visions of Eight. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. That's all, all that's right. all the news that New York Times was fit to print. Well, it's been a wonderful Campus July swingers. 4th. <laughs> what? Campus Swingers. Oh, there's the, there's the ad for The Way We Were. You oh, almost right. missed oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Thank Remember, you. that's why we're here? That's why we're here. So let's see what the critics, what other critics were saying. Now, the, the, the top pull quote is from Pauline Kael. Okay, but I mean, could, has there ever been a lamer pull quote? <laughs> the way we were even memorable entertainment. <laughs> the way we were is hit entertainment and maybe even memorable entertainment. Okay, thanks. I love wow, that they, they actually just, put that in an ad. Just hungry to get any Pauline Kale quote on their ad. Now, Judith Chris said, I found the way we were a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Like, all of these quotes to me seem like they're trying to make excuses for this movie. So richly produced by Ray Stark, so intelligently directed by Sidney Pollack, and so well performed by superstars Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand that movie lovers of a certain age needn't feel totally ashamed of walking out <laughs> with a trace of tears on. It's like, here's one from Ed Miller at 17. Movie of the month. Another love story. Not as slick, but truer, deeper, and much more affecting. Uh, 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 this is an ad for naysayers. Yeah. This is, this is much like Clockwork Orange. The people who've seen the way we were have seen it. Here's an ad for people who already know they're not going to like it that much. You're right. The critics agree with you. But see it anyway. You needn't feel totally ashamed of yeah. walking out. Yeah. Partly ashamed is more than enough. Yes. <laughs> well, now, Mama was also playing at the on Long Island at the U.A. Syosset. We didn't go to Long Island. <laughs> or in New Jersey <laughs> at the Stanley Warner. I know. That really I was one another of those. universe. It, uh, you know, I don't have the Love Story ad in front of me, but this really looks like... Yeah. Probably the identical ad for Love Story. So that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to like Definitely say, going for it. Yeah. Oh, well, Mom, I'm so happy we had this time together. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Scott. Nice to meet you. Have a have a good day. Have a do good Do you come to New York? Uh yeah. Yeah, I do. You do. He comes to New York when he's on tour with his band. Well, I know, but you know have we have a big house. If you ever need a place. Okay. I'm serious. In Brooklyn. Right. In Brooklyn. Right in the heart of the happening borough. Yes, right. It is a very happening borough. Well, that's there you go. There's an invitation from my mom. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes I come to New York and I don't even have a show. I well, just there come you there. Go. Right. Yeah. That's true too. But you usually have a place to stay no matter what. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Everybody right, you for too. listening to our nonsense. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for sitting through this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best episode. Ever.